This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Romans chapter 8, and also Romans chapter 16. If you could just pause that for a moment, Tony, for me, please. Romans chapter 8, and really one, and also Romans 16, but for the first verse here is Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in chapter 16, Verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. The Apostle Paul uh, obviously wrote the book of Romans and he wrote it from the city of Corinth and he always wanted to go to Rome but at that point he hadn't been he would go later but he would go as a prisoner remember how he appealed on to Caesar and he had to go to Rome and later he would die there but this lady Phoebe who lived nearby uh, who was a servant that says, and the word is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. So in all probability, she was a deaconess in the church in Corinth. And she was going on some business to meet other believers in Rome. And as would be the practice in those days, then somebody would write a letter of commendation for her to take to prove her bona fides that she was who she was. And... Paul begins to write this simple letter of commendation. But it ends up 16 chapters long. A fantastic, wonderful book that we have to this very day. And somebody says that whenever, whenever Phoebe went to Rome with the scrolls, uh, that she carried within her gowns the whole future of the theology of the Christian church. And that's not overstating it because this book is so important to Christian theology for us as believers to understand. If we we did not have the book of Romans, we would know very little about justification or sanctification or redemption or atonement and all these big subjects. And so he sends her uh, with this. And this this is Paul at his very best. This is a vintage Paul. And it's, it, it, it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful treatise that when he writes it, of course, probably never thinking that, that 2,000 years later that people would be reading it and understanding uh, their faith. Because without this, our understanding would be very, very small. And so he writes this and In the midst of it, he makes this statement. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? And even though he put the word if there, if is not in any way doubting that God is for us, it can literally read, read since God is for us, because that's what it means. Since God is for us, then who or what can be against us? And so what a tremendous affirmation that, that what God has done for us and what he's doing to us and what he will yet do for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's not to say that things or people will not be against us. Because if you live any length of time in this world, you find out how true that is, that people and things do, from time to time, come against us. But Paul is clearly saying here, no matter who, no matter what comes against us, that in Christ we can overcome that. Amen. That in Christ we win. Hallelujah. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so it's a tremendously positive, <laughs> affirming statement. Now there's lots of things come against us, and Paul mentions them even in this very chapter. In verse 1 he says, condemnation. Verse 2, the law of sin and death. Verse 8, the flesh. 18, sufferings. 21, corruption. 22, pain. 26, infirmity. And that triple-headed monster, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and more, all comes against the Christian believer. But regardless of what it is, or who it is, or where it comes from, if God is for us, then nothing, Hallelujah. nothing Hallelujah. can defeat us in Christ. And so this is a wonderful, wonderful, exceptional book. And our focus this morning is going to obviously be in chapter 8. <laughs> and it's lovely how Paul puts this at the beginning of the chapter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And in the end, he says, the last verse, there's no separation in Christ. What two bookends for a chapter? No condemnation in Christ, no separation from Christ. And so that's enough to keep you going in time and in eternity. So how do we know this morning? How do we know that God is for us? It's easy making that affirmation and saying that. But how do we know that? How can we count on that as being genuine and authentic at all occasions in our life? Well, first of all, and very obviously, he gave us his son. In verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God did by sending his own son. And in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And of course, in John 1 and 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. 
God sent his only son. Not a seraphim, not a cherubim, not an archangel, but the very best that he had. The dearest, the most precious to him, his only beloved begotten son. And what a wonderful thing that is for us today to understand and to know that. Remember in Genesis 22, and how that God spoke to Abraham and told him to go to Mount Moriah and there offer his son, Isaac, his beloved son, to offer him up as a sacrifice. What a test. You think that after all of those years having to wait even to get a son and then for God to come years after that and say, give up your son to me. Sacrifice him for me. What a testing moment. But Abraham was up to the test. And so he got his servants and he got his son Isaac and they went to Mount Moriah. And in verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham's faith was such that he believed that even if he did this, that God would immediately raise him from the dead because God had given him a promise about his son that in his seed that all the earth would be blessed. In fact, before they went up the mountain and he told the servants to stay back, he says, I and the boy will return again. And so there was no doubt in his mind. His faith was so strong that God's promise to his son would be so real that even if he killed him, that God would raise him up from the dead. But Abraham said, My son God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord cried out to him and says, from heaven said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. A type, if you will, of the Son of God that was to become, that was to be offered up as a sacrifice. Only in this case, God had no ram in a thicket. God had no plan B. God was only going to give his son. And he would not withhold his hand. 
and he would not spare his son's life, but he would give him freely on that cross to die and shed his blood for us as the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so on that Mount Moriah and on Mount Calvary, God gave his only beloved Son for us. Zion 9 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. As a child he was born, but as a son he was given. Given to us, given for us, given by the Father for our sins. How do we know that God is for us? Could be no greater way than to know that He gave His only begotten Son. Then He gave us His Spirit. Whenever we think about the Holy Spirit, particularly in churches like ourselves, we generally automatically go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But isn't it interesting, right here in this chapter, that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times of what the Holy Spirit does. And so the Holy Spirit is bigger and greater and better than we can imagine. And we could not live our Christian lives without the Holy Spirit within us. It would be impossible. Just as a sum of the verse, verse 9, He dwells within us, verse 10. He imparts life to us, 12 and 23. He will resurrect us, verse 2. He sets us free, verse 13. He makes us live, verse 14. He guides us, verse 16. He gives us assurance, verse 26. He is our helper, our advocate, the one called alongside to help. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is powerful in the life of a believer. We could not live the life of a believer without the Holy Spirit. And sadly, oftentimes he's treated as the, as the least in the Godhead. But he's co-equal with the Father and co-equal with the Son. He's God the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14... Jesus preparing his disciples for his going away. Verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. In the form of the Holy Spirit. One just like me will come, not be beside you, but to be in you. 
And then, of course, then in chapter 16, verse 5, Now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he, the Holy Spirit, he will take of mine and declare it unto you. And so God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given to us his Son. And then thirdly, and Paul talks about this in this chapter. He has adopted us. We're adopted into the family of God. Now, Paul is writing to Roman Christians who were quite well aware of the Roman system of adoption. It means son placing. And it's very, very important we understand because Paul's writing to people who did understand this. William Barclay, he said that in Roman society, the father had absolute power and authority over his son, his sons, his children. And this was called patria potestas in Latin, the father's power. And it was absolute. And no matter how old a son may be or how long he lived, as long as his father was alive, his father had patria potestas. He had the absolute power and authority over his son. And so being adopted into another family was no easy thing. It was a difficult thing to do. There were things that you had to go through to get to that place. A Roman son would have to pass from one's patria potestas to another's patria potestas. From one's absolute authority to another's absolute authority. And that involved two steps. And the first was known, according to Barclay, as mancipatio. Mancipatio. M-I-N. C-I-P-A-T-I-O, Mancipatio. And it took the form of the use of symbolic scales and copper coins. And it was a little ritual. Well, the father who put these little coins on the scales, and he did it three times. And the first two times he did it, he took them back again. But the third time he did it, he did not take them back again, which meant that the patria potestas was finished. It was over. It was broken from his side. And then after the seal, there was this ceremony where 
the father would, who's going to receive this son would go to the Roman authorities and he would present papers for a legal case for the transference of this person to be adopted into the patria potestas of another person. And when this was done, then the transaction was complete. Now, of course, the Romans knew that. They were Romans. They had known that. But what Paul was trying to get through to them was the consequences of this spiritually for them and for us even today. And there's four things. The adopted son lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. So legally and vitally and literally, he had a new father. Then secondly, he becomes heir to the new father's estate and joint heir with his new brothers and sisters in his new family. And then thirdly, in law, the old life of the adopted son was immediately wiped out and any debts he had incurred, if that was the case, then they were cancelled and he was free. And his old life had no more power over him because now he had a new life with a new father and a new family. And in the eyes of the law, the adopted son was now legally, vitally, literally the son of a new father. Now one more thing. The adoption ceremony was carried out in the presence of seven witnesses. Because if the father, the new father had died and his other sons, biological sons, didn't want this adopted son to get any of the inheritance, what's he going to do? He's going to go to the seven witnesses, or how many of them was living at the time, and they could prove that he was genuinely, legally entitled to whatever was coming to him. Now you understand why Paul said in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That we are the sons of God. Legally, vitally, literally, we are the sons of God. Our old life is over. All debts have been cancelled. It is no more hold over us because we're in the family of God today. And we are heirs and we're joint heirs with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The gospel is such a wonderful, wonderful truth. Glory to God. The Holy Spirit is our witness. When you get born again, you knew something had happened to you. The Spirit witnessed with your spirit. It's a spiritual thing. It's supernatural. Can't explain it, but you know it. And that knowing is the witness of the Holy Spirit saying, it's right. You're a child of God. Nobody can gainsay that. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 23, (laughs) 
Well, we read verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting, listen for it, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption, redemption of our body. Ah. So this adoption business that Paul speaks of is not just limited to our spirit. Not just limited even to right now, but into the future to do with our body. (laughs) This body, good as it is, is dying every day. It's getting older and weaker and frailer. And, and one day, if we live long enough, it'll be laid to the earth or return to dust. But the promise is that one day, God will raise it up again and give us a body like unto his glorious body. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, talks about the body of our humiliation. in all of its weakness, particularly whenever we let into the earth and the corruption sets in. But he says, this corruption will turn into incorruption. This weakness will turn into strength. This death will turn into life. You know, and that's the wonderful thing when you bury a believer, and I have buried many believers. That's why the graveyard sometimes is nicknamed God's Acre, because that's where the body is in as a seed that one day will sprout up into newness of life. Word cemetery means sleeping place, by the way, with the sense of God's sleep in their bodies. But God will give us a new body like unto his glorious body. And Paul puts that into the whole package of adoption. We're still waiting for that part yet to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. You say, well, I look like myself when I get to heaven. Yes, you will, but you look an awful lot better looking than you are right now. <laughs> All the wrinkles will be gone. The glasses will be gone. The hair nails will be gone. The limping will be gone. The sore backs will be gone. You'll be full of life and vitality and energy forever and forever and forever. We've got that to look forward to as believers. If God is for us, who can be against us? So you can see clearly the metaphor that Paul is using to these Roman believers, what had happened to them and what has happened to us. Glory to God. Once they and us were under the control and the sway of the evil one. In a sense, the devil was our father. Somebody says he was our father-in-law. Under the law, he was our father. <laughs> Jesus said to those scribes and Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do. Mm. But now we belong 
a new father. And it's his influence and it's his sway over lives. And now if God is for us, who can be against us? And then fourthly, he makes all things work together for our good. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now we know that not all things are good. But even the things that are bad that can come against us, God can turn them around for our good. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Hmm, we don't like that bit. Be wonderful if everything was wonderful and great and beautiful and nothing would ever come against us. Not be wonderful? Actually, not really. Because then we wouldn't need to trust God the same or pray the same or lean on Him the same. But Paul said, it worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. And let me tell you, he was not speaking in a vacuum here. It certainly wasn't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about the things that came against him. In verse 5 he says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Yeah. Paul is going on here about the, the, the church at Corinth, this church that he loved, uh, this church that was dear to his heart. When he went away from them, and he wanted to come back another time. They wrote to him and said, give us, give us some letters of recommendation. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> Can you believe that? People that knew him, that knew what he was like, and they had the audacity to say, give us some letters of recommendation, because when he was away, others had crept in who seemed to be more eminent, who seemed to be greater speakers, who were great orators, and they were caught up with this nonsense. And so Paul's writing to him. He's a bit embarrassed at having to write about this, trying to prove himself to them again. So that's what he said in verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. All right, these people's boasting about themselves. All right, I feel foolish doing this, but I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to boast a little here. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to their flesh, I also will boast. For you seem to put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. <laughs> He's very sarcastic here, isn't he? He's really ticked off, isn't he? He really is. 
But then he goes on to say, but these ones that could come in. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides the other thing, what comes upon me daily, my concern for all the churches. Wow. That's some list, isn't it? But, but he writes, in all these things I'm more than a conqueror. But he writes, if God is for me, who can be against me? (laughs) You cannot keep this man down. What a tremendous attitude. What a spirit. If God is for us, who can be against us? Way back in Genesis 42, verse 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take away Benjamin? All these things are against me. All these things are against me. But were they really against him? Actually, no. They were for him, but he couldn't see it at that point. You remember how the brothers sold Joseph, their young brother, into slavery? And how long period of the providential dealings of God and how he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and told him about the great famine that was to come. He was risen up to be the prime minister of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And of course the famine in the land did not only, was not only in Egypt that was to come, but in, in neighboring lands, including Israel. And when the famine really was biting Then Jacob told his sons to go to Egypt and to buy some corn. And so ten of them went to buy corn. And of course there's only one man to get it off and that was Joseph. Pharaoh put him in charge of all of the dealings of all of the corn. And whenever they got into his presence, he instantly recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. He was a much older person now. He was dressed as an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian fluently. He had a beard like an Egyptian, no doubt. And he was in this powerful position. And so they asked him for some car. Where do you come from? From Canaan. Ah, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. No, my Lord, it says, we're honest men. Uh, We're sons of one man. We're all brothers. There was 12 of us. One is no more. 
But the youngest one, he's with the father. But honestly, we're honest men. No, he says, no, 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 he says, you're spies. No, my Lord, we're not spies. We're, we're good people. All right, he says, prove it. Prove it. Go and get your young brother and bring him here. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to get you all to stay here and one of you will go back to your home and bring him back here. And then he put them all in prison for three days. Then he took them out of prison and he changed things around a little bit. He says, actually, what's going to happen is one of you is going to stay here and the rest of you go back to your father's house, to your homes. But you've got to bring your younger son, brother, back to me. And so Simeon was tied up and Simeon was put into prison. And then he said, because he's speaking through interpreters, he said to his servants, by the way, when they get their corn in their sacks, he says, put their money, their pouch, back into their sacks again. So and they came to a place where they needed to feed the donkeys and one opened his sack and lo and behold he found his money pouch and it scared the living daylights out of them. <laughs> We're honest men. What? <laughs> well, how does money get in the pouch? So they went back home to the father and they explained what happened to the father and he says, we've got to go back again and take Benjamin with us and that's why he said, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simon is no more. And you want, me, you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You're going to put my gray hairs into the grave. If you read on, that's what he says. So he says, no, not going to do it. And they ate all the corn. And when the corn was all done, they were really hungry. He says, well, we're going to have, we're going to, have to we're going to have to go to Egypt because it's the only place you're going to eat. And Judah says, well, I told you. But I'll take full responsibility. So the old man relented. He says, well, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. We're going to die anyway, so you might as well go. And so they went back. They arrived in Joseph's court. And when Joseph saw Benjamin, his heart was really moved. And he went out and he wept. And then he washed his face and came back in again. <coughs> and he said, uh, he hugged the young man. He said, God be with you. And he said to them, uh, is the old man still living? Yes, our father's still alive. I want to see him. I want you to bring him here. So I'm going to keep the young brother and you can go and bring him. No, a little bit happened. I got ahead of myself. Excuse me. A little bit happened. We seen the young brother, and he sent them all back. He asked about the father, but he sent them all back, and he said to his servant, he says, look, put their money pouches back in the, back in the corn again, but this time put my silver cup, my best cup, put it in the young boy's bag. And then when they got out of the town, go after them and say, tell them, why did you return evil for good? Some of you stole my master's cup, his divination cup. 
One of you has got it. And Judas says, well, we're honest men. And if that's the case, if one of us got it, well, kill him, let him die, and take the rest of us as slaves. So they started to search the bags. And of course, that was in Benjamin's bag. Their hearts sank. Their hearts sank. And they all had to get back to Joseph. And Joseph said, what have you done? You stole my cup, my divination cup. Did you not know I would know you'd done this in divination? And they were frightened. Is your father still alive? Yes. Well, you're going to have to get him to bring him here. But I'm going to keep the young brother here until you come back. And they said, look, if we do this, it will kill our father. He's already told us, this will put my gray hairs into the grave. And at that point, Joseph could forbear no longer. And so he sent all of his servants out till there was only him and them. And then he revealed himself to them. Can you imagine how afraid they must have been at that point? They must have been shaking in their boots. And he says, don't be afraid, don't worry. God had a purpose in this. And so he hugged them and he kissed them and they wept and he wept. What a reunion that was. And then he sent them all back again with more than they ever came with. Sent them all back again and said, bring your father, bring the whole family, bring your wives, bring your children, bring them all and we'll keep them here in the land of Goshen. And when the old father saw them coming, and he says, Joseph is alive. He's the prime minister of Egypt. They didn't want to believe that. I mean, how could he believe that? I mean, he thought his son would have been torn to pieces of wild beasts all those years ago. He says, no, look what we've got. And when he saw all the wagons overflowing with food, he believed. And he went back, all of them went back. And it was only after 17 years Later, when Jacob finally died as an old, old man, then the brothers get really scared because he thought he loves his dad. The dad's dead now. We're in big trouble because it doesn't matter what he does because dad's not going to know about it. And he sensed that. And he says, don't worry. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, God can work out everything after the counsel of his own will. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're almost finished. Fifthly, his plan, or his plans, if you will, for our lives are complete. In verses 29 to 30, he uses words like foreordained, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Ah, big subjects. All of them would tax the minds of most theologians and has done for centuries. Suffice to say, 
that God has a plan for our lives. He knows the end from the beginning. Even before we were born, the psalmist said, and Jeremiah said, and Isaiah said. And even when we were in our mother's womb, he had a plan for our lives. And when you become born again of God's Spirit, you have just begun to recognize God's plan for your life. And now we're walking in it. And it's a wonderful plan. Jeremiah 29, 11. My plans for you are good, not for evil, to give you hope and a future. His plans for our lives are complete. You can safely trust God. You can safely put your life into his hands, knowing that he knows the end from the beginning. Yes, there's times when things seem difficult and strange and confusing, and I've read you some of this stuff, but at the end of it, when Joseph was thrown into that pit and betrayed by his brothers, he wasn't thinking at that point, hey, God's in this. But after many years looking back, he saw the reason for it. God had a purpose in this, to save you alive, to save the family, actually to save the nation of Israel. And then finally, he has made us more than conquerors. If you read 35 to 39, he makes us more than conquerors. I think that all of us would just be content with being a conqueror. I think we could get by on that. But Paul says, no, he's made you more than a conqueror. It's always better and brighter and greater and bigger than we can ever imagine. Actually, no matter what you're going through right now, you are more than a conqueror. You're more than able for this. That's what Paul's saying. If God is for you, who can be against you? No matter what it is, God is for you. And when you know that in your heart, God is for me. Of course, the devil want to come in and try to mess you up and try to make you think God doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He's against you. But that's not true. If you're born again of God's Spirit and you're walking after the Spirit, not walking after the flesh, God is for us who can be against us. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. And so Paul says you're more than a conqueror today. You're made for victory. You're made to win. You're made to get through this life with God in Christ. And at the end of it, it gets even better. It gets far better than we could ever, ever imagine. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your plans for us are good. We bless you, Lord, that we have put our lives into your care and keeping. So no matter what we face or what comes against, with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are on board in our lives. And we're not going to sink. We're not going under. We're going over to the other side. And so we bless you and we give you thanks today for your victory at Calvary. Now we live in that victory. And we bless you, Lord, that your plans are good. Thank you for being a good God, a great Father, that we're adopted into your family today. 
And we thank you that we are heirs and joint heirs with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So this we pray and believe and trust. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.